You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. The funeral home is an open door to the church. The funeral home is an open door to the church. A mentor and friend of mine named Pastor Jack told me that so many times. He was a pastor and he had a deeply meaningful and involved ministry in the funeral home in our town. And as a pastor of our Lord Jesus, he showed care and concern and deep love to so many families who were in grief. Today, you're gonna hear part two of an episode on funerals for the care of souls. Funerals for the Care of Souls is written by Dr. Tim Perry. Tim is the academic dean at Providence Theological Seminary in Manitoba, Canada. He's the author of Funerals for the Care of Souls, published by Lexham Press. Last week, we started this conversation with episode one. Today, you're going to hear the second part. You're going to hear some more theological reflection and then some practical implications that I think are so valuable for pastors who are doing funerals and who are involved in ministry to those who are grieving. Thanks so much for tuning in. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy part two of this conversation. We are Wesley and you belong here. My name is Victoria Borum and I am Wesley. I'm Lenny Lucchetti and I am Wesley. My name is Chris and guess what? I am Wesley. Hi, I'm Tina Shoppett and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too because we are Wesley. How dare we talk about hell without talking about heaven, precisely because the invitation is into heaven. Now, just as you talked about some poorly formed imaginations with hell, there are also some poorly formed imaginations with heaven. You've got a great quote from C.S. Lewis in the book about, about not worrying about people who say they don't believe in heaven because what they say they believe in heaven is about just strumming on harps and sitting in clouds, right? That, that yeah. kind of poorly formed imagination of, of heaven, likewise, is not what scripture talks about. And so if we're going to talk about the shift from being in hell and naming that to invite people out of that construction and into the grace of God, into the mercy of God, which we in the grand scope are calling heaven, how do we reshape people's imaginations? Maybe start, restart this conversation by saying, what's a proper view of heaven when we think about the afterlife or that which awaits us? upon our own deaths. There are several threads you want to untangle there. The first two, I, I, I think, are largely distractions to your question, but they have to do with uh, the immortality of the soul and the intermediate state. I'm happy to say those who die uh, in Christ are in Christ, even though they're dead. And so we don't need to worry about them. Wherever they are, it's good because it's with Jesus. Is that heaven? No, I don't think it is. In the Apostles' Creed, uh, the life everlasting follows the resurrection of the body, the complete recreation of heaven and earth and human beings so that that new heaven, new earth, is fit for the fullness of God and human beings are fit for their vocation as priests and kings in that new heaven and new earth, visibly representing God. That's heaven, and we're not there yet. Uh, So that's one thing I would say. The second thing I would say is is 
heaven, broadly speaking, is the perfection of our union with Christ. That is uh, symbolically expressed in baptism and for which uh, we hope. In the book, I talk about a, a troubling experience that my wife Rachel had while reading The Great Divorce. For a long time, she had conceived of heaven as a place where she would be reunited with her mother, who died when, uh, when she was just a, a fairly young woman before Rachel and I had, had met. Later, when Rachel became a mom herself, heaven became a place where uh, she would continue to be known by her children. And it was with that thought of heaven in mind that, you know, she was reading The Great Divorce, and all of a sudden, a really uncomfortable thought intruded into her head, and God does this to us some, from time to time. So why is union with Jesus not heaven enough? Why does there need to be something more added to it? And I think that that's where we need to start, going back to your question about catechesis, when we're teaching ourselves and our people about heaven. Heaven is the completion of our union with Christ that is promised in the New Testament. Whatever else it is, it is that first and it is that most. That's where we got to start. Any other kind of reunion aspects, which is the place where my imagination goes, I think simply because of the place, the way in which you and I both have been raised, is contingent upon that. That's where we need to start. We need to start thinking about heaven, not in, in spatial terms, but in terms of the souls and the church's union with Jesus and the perfection of that union uh, on into eternity. That's where you start. Let, let me try and tie some of these threads together, going back to the funeral being a Christian worship service, that maybe will succeed and maybe it won't. And if, and if it doesn't, listeners will be gracious and uh, you can help me figure it out. So scripture presents the, the grand vision of the end as the wedding of God with his people. The son is the groom and the church is the bride. And I think about the wedding experience and I'm thinking about the wedding experience where the groom is enthralled with the bride and, and those eyes are meeting, right? And there's this procession down, down the aisle. And in that moment, there's a, a complete, almost unawareness. I'm, I'm romanticizing it a little bit, but you get what I'm saying. There's, there's kind of an unawareness of all the other people who are watching on, right? The, the moment is about, is about the bride and the groom. And when I think about that in terms of heaven, about the gaze of God being through the sun at the church, and the church is not concerned about the guests who are there, so to speak. The bride is only concerned with the groom. And when I think about that as heaven, then the fact that the bride and groom would have this moment to kind of look for others in, the, in those who are gathered after the ceremony is over, that only happens because they've been humble enough to allow one another to look for other people, right? So maybe I could flip it to be like this. Whenever we are in God's presence, if God truly is God, then we would have no concern for anybody else, unless God would be the one who would spark that concern, right? We would be so enthralled with God that we would never have a desire, never have an inkling to turn my face from God to look for somebody else. And so the fact that we might look for other people in heaven, to put it like that, is the humility of God. 
It's the, it's the humility of God to graciously turn our face from him to look for somebody else. It's, it's not in a way, ultimately, if and when we recognize and see other people in heaven, it's not in a way that God is not involved, but precisely because God has been involved in the whole thing. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that our face is turned towards God. And if our face is turned towards somebody else, we are only seeing them through God. And so God is still the, the means of seeing other people if he is not, in a sense, the, the object of vision in that, in that moment, which I think fits well with, with Paul's urging and, and glory where God is all and is in all, right? That, that we ultimately have this, this picture of things. So I think about back to the wedding then, you know, after the ceremony is over and the bride and groom are greeting people and are kind of taking this moment away from one another, but are, are greeting people that we really see that that greeting is secondary to the moment of the bride and groom gazing at one another and kind of everything else falling by the, by the wayside. Does that try, does that tie some, some threads together? I'm kind of trying it out for the first moment here, which is yeah, always an interesting, but. It certainly, it certainly works for me. It, it nicely captures the image of, of union and, and, and reunion, which I think is, is, you know, one of the overarching plots of the whole Bible you know, that starts, starts in Genesis 3 with God asking the question, Adam, where are you? Uh, and it, it ends in the, you know, the, the union of God and creation, Christ and his church in the book of Revelation. And it's almost like God saying, oh, there you are. And, and in between is, is the whole pursuit of God after his, you know, reluctant lover. And he's not going to give up. He's, he's relentless in his loving pursuit of his people. A little bit lost the train of my thought there, but I'm really, I'm quite taken with, with that, that, that kind of wedding imagery. I'm also taken with the imagery of, of the temple in the new heavens and the new earth, where John the Revelator borrows extensively from the latter chapters of Ezekiel. John's new city is bigger than Ezekiel's city, and John's new city doesn't need a temple because we don't need a physical sign of God's presence in creation because God has united himself with creation. And we, God's people, are, to borrow Peter's language, the living stones of the new temple. We are manifestations of that presence of God fully and completely. And so the signs that we have had of God's presence in the past are set aside. All, all those images, it seems to me, revolve around union and reunion. God has, for whatever reason, been put away from us or withdrawn himself from us. But he is returning. As surely as he delivered Israel from Egypt, as surely as he brought the exiles back to the land, as surely as he raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, the glory of God will return and fill all creation. And when that happens, that will be heaven. I want to turn things in a practical direction, but I hope that the initial part of this conversation has set the tone for why we would do the practices, why the practical aspects of this would be filled with meaning, not something simply to do, not just part of the role that we grin and bear it, not something that we're, we're not quite sure why we're doing what we're doing, but out of the sense of naming what opposition to God is and ends in, naming what the invitation is and being filled with that sense of good news certainly changes the posture of the pastor 
who's now going into the home of those who are grieving, those who are experiencing loss. So you're not able to tell us all this step by step, you know, moment by moment, but I would love for you to give us some practical guidance, some wise practices formed from scripture or or tradition, even your own experience. What are some things that the pastor should keep in mind as they are beginning to serve a family who has just lost a loved one for whom a family member or friend or whoever else has died? The most important thing, it seems to me, is to know yourself in the context of your ordination, because every case is going to be different. Tolstoy, who said happy families are all alike and unhappy families are each unhappy in their own way. Grief is all the same, but every instantiation of grief is going to be different. So you can't prepare by simply documenting and studying cases because no two cases are going to be exactly the same. Case studies are important. You'll always learn from them. And in the book, uh, I encourage pastors to to, uh, write them up, share them, have a mentor to go over them. Uh, That is important. But because each case is different, the most important thing a pastor can do is be aware of of the ordination vows that, that give or bestow that office. You're not going to a home as Tim Perry, Aaron Perry, whomever. You're going as a representative of Jesus. And you're going right down into the darkest part of the valley of the shadow of death. And you may well be the only spark of light in that valley. And if you stop and think about that too much, it can be overwhelming. A smart pastor will deliberately hide himself behind his office, not to be deceptive or to be self-preservative, but to remind himself that he's going as a representative of Jesus And his job is to bring Jesus into that situation, not to be the source of comfort himself. I mean, I might might be wrong, uh, but I, I, I wonder if that kind of grounding and reminding is actually better preserved by the traditional symbols of our office, like a collar, you know, which when I wear mine, it says to me at least, okay, This is a situation in which I am not going in as Tim Perry. I am going in as the face of Christ to a family who needs to see the face of Christ. Because he, in the valley of the shadow, is the source of comfort, not me. Because there's nothing I can say or do that's going to make this event different. But Jesus is the life giver. So that's, that's, I think, where to start. Be aware of your own place vis-a-vis your office. You're going as a minister of word and sacrament. You're going as a minister of Jesus, and it's word, sacrament, and Jesus that has to take priority. I like that you mentioned ordination, Tim, because I think it gives us a chance to think about what Christ is doing and will continue to do even as the pastor leaves. Because even as you mentioned before, that heaven is about this context where human beings are, are royal priests to the whole of creation. So are they royal priests to one another. And so the pastor, as the one who has been set aside, 
who has been ordered into that service for the family is not doing something that the family isn't to do for themselves, but is doing something that they're not capable of doing for themselves in the moment. They're not capable. It's a grace for the pastor to be there. It's a gift for the pastor to be there because it's the Lord Jesus who's present so that he can care for them. Now, hopefully what's happening is that they are going to be formed and shaped and given a model about how they can care for others as well, right? I'll I'll use therapeutic language, but I think it's helpful that that they can be a non-anxious presence in the lives of others who are grieving, right? So that they are providing space for others to grieve. And you can start to see the ripple effect, right? If the one takes seriously their orders, right? Their their place of, of ministry to go and be in those uncomfortable settings to help those who are grieving to grieve well. If they model that well, then the Lord Jesus is also able to work his life into those who are, who are being ministered to. And they're able to carry that out, both one another as a family, as they will continue to grieve well after the pastor has gone, but then into the lives of the other people. And you see how the church then, if this is a church family, how the church can be the, the means of grace one to another, right? The, the presence of Jesus is, is truly present in the, in the church. So it's exemplary, but it's not taking away from the family work that they are going to do or, or will do at some point. It's setting a model. It's reminding them. It's giving example. It, it's the place where Jesus is present in order to train not just the pastor, but to train the, to train the people. And I think there's nothing wrong with the therapeutic language that you use. I think I wanted to kind of deepen it by using, you know, the language of, of, of sacrament. It is about being a non-anxious presence. It is not only about being a non-anxious presence. You really are bringing Jesus to people. That's why, you know, if it's an an unchurched family, a family with no connection to your parish at all, you go anyway. Because you are bringing Jesus to those people. And you know what? No, they're not going to get all the theology and the ins and outs of everything. And they don't have to. That's, that's important stuff for churched people. In the emergency calls that every pastor gets, in the calls to families with no church connection at all, completely unaware of the gospel, you go anyway, and you trust that in going, you're bringing Jesus to that family. And even if the gospel content that they can receive from you is pretty minimal, You have to regard it as a seed sown by Jesus himself that may fall on hard ground and be snatched up by the birds, that may fall on shallow ground or stony ground and grow up quickly and then wither, that may be choked out by weeds, or that may fall on fertile ground and be watered by someone else and harvested by a third person. You just don't know. But you go because you're bringing Jesus, you're planting the gospel standard on the front porch of hell in those situations. And that's why you never say no, right? And it it doesn't matter if they don't get it right away. You go anyway. I think you're absolutely right. And and what I wanna name is the battle language that has been used, right? The planting a standard, right? Going, Going into, dark and dreary places, right? These are, this is battle imagery. And that's exactly what the pastor is doing in these places. It is doing battle against the forces of death. It's doing, it's doing battle in places that are otherwise going to not have a light within it. So a couple of things that I would suggest is is one, this is one of the reasons why the pastor's spiritual life is so important. 
So important that the pastor is not well equipped to go into these dark times if their own spiritual life is not well formed and they themselves are, are not properly bound up and, and properly in Christ themselves. So you talked about uh, at the start of the conversation, we talked about how important it is for the pastor to wrestle through in their own life, what it is they're doing in the presence of the grieving family. So also is it so important to recognize when I go into the presence of people who are grieving, who are facing darkness and despair and grief that I'm going to be doing battle. And so I need to be properly, not just formed in my mind, but also properly formed in my, in myself and my, my inner life. That'd be one thing I'd suggest. Two other things that I found really helpful. These were helpful on a continuum. So maybe less helpful with families who had a deep pedigree in church, but more helpful with families who didn't, and yet helpful across the board. One was deep familiarity with the Psalms. And, and I would say that that's, that's something I'm still working on. But a deep familiarity with the Psalms was so helpful just to have language that would come out from time to time. And it also helps to form language that would be used in the funeral sermons. So Psalms uh, are, are so often being used for uh, I think that I use Psalm 39 probably four to six times as a funeral sermon. And, and every time was reacquainting myself with Psalm 39 in order to preach it in a way that's, of course, tailored to the family that's right there so that the word of God is pinpointed to that family and there's good news in it for them. Uh, but I found that being familiar with the Psalms was really helpful. And then secondly, having a familiarity with, with hymns. Now we're in a, we're in an opportunity where for some people that that's like, well, no one, no one knows hymns, right? The, the people I go to serve don't know hymns all the better the opportunity to give them not something that is going to wither away shortly, but something that has stood the test of time, something that has been meaningful to many people. And so to become familiar with, with him, so that there's something that they can bring to the moment. And again, it's a, it's a seed planted, right? It's, it's the gospel in song form. So familiarity with hymns that are, are meaningful in these times, I found to be really helpful as well. Any final comments that you would make about maybe some opportunities or best practices or some wisdom that you would leave for pastors as they are preparing to serve a family or to prepare a funeral? One of the most disturbing conversations I had with the minister, and it was long before I wrote this book, uh, but I recall it now afterwards, it was a conversation in which he insisted that he left the funerals to the assistant pastor as though they weren't that important. People die. The death rate in spite of the advances of medical science, is a steady 100%. Everyone, I mean, to any pastor listening to this, every one of the people that you're going to be standing in front of this Sunday morning is going to die. Barring the return of Jesus, every one of them, and you yourself, you're going to die. We need to stop pretending, as I think our culture so desperately wants us to do, that death is something to be denied or regarded as foreign. It's inevitable. It's the wages of sin. It's coming to all of us. And the gospel is that inevitability is not the last word. But you can't skip over it to get to the last word. And a wise pastor is one, especially in these days, when our existential fear of death as a culture has been so laid bare by COVID, the wise pastor is one who faithfully reminds his people that those people are going to die. And after that will be the judgment. And that that is good news. 
I can imagine like Edmund, the character from Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that, that my encounter with Jesus is going to be pretty painful at the judgment. Surgeries are painful, whether in this life or in the afterlife. But we have a God who heals. And, and if in that final healing, it hurts a little bit, so much the better. It's good news. It's not something to be shied away from or, or, or made to be a source of fear. Uh, we're going to meet Jesus. And in meeting his gaze at the end of our lives, he is going to perfect us and make us fit for heaven. And in that moment of judgment, we will be made ready for union with God. I don't know that I've ever heard that sermon preached, but it'll preach. Well, I just want to take a moment of a brotherly privilege here and just say, I really appreciate you sharing that. And it was Eustace, not Edmund, who met. Sorry, his name was Eustace Clarence Scrub and he almost deserved it. I'm sorry. No, I'm so glad you made that that little uh, slip of the tongue because it gave me a chance to correct you. Okay. (laughs) To be honest, that there actually is a place for comedy in the funeral. That is such an important reminder to us that a Christian funeral is not one that's simply marked with sobriety and somberness and, and, and down. It's a comedy, right? There's an ending that we anticipate that we are still pointing towards. And the Christian story is one that uniquely tells that because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So I think that maybe there's, there's providence uh, in that, that allows us to wind things up on that end. Actually, this is going to feel foreign, but you mentioned something that I think is so important. The pastor who said, I leave that to the assistants. One of the best things, one of the best things that clergy men and women who have been in the service for a while, who've been in the ministry for a while is to bring younger clergy along with them into visiting the family, into planning the service into participating in the service, such a gift to younger clergy. Maybe they're not on your staff, right? Maybe you have an assistant or associate or or a pastoral team and, and you can bring them along. But even if you just know a younger clergy, a younger clergy person in the, in the town, in the community or in your denomination, that bringing them along so that they are shepherded through this as well is such a gift and is such a, a good practice for, for those with experience to introduce. And that was something that was given to me time and time and time again. And it certainly shaped the, uh, the ministry as I would participate in funerals. So those of you listeners with experience, do that. Serve your younger clergy partners, younger ministerial partners in that, in that way. Tim, thanks so much for taking the time to join us on the on the podcast. I certainly appreciate it. And it's been a lot of fun, as ironic as people might take, but I hope it's been valuable and beneficial both for you and for our listeners. I hope so too. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. This is the Wesley Seminary Podcast. We introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. Today, we've been talking about funerals for the care of souls. Authored by Tim Perry, published by Lexham Press. You can find it on different online booksellers. I encourage you to take a look at that resource. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thank you, Tim, for taking this time. Thank you, Connor, for your editing and production work. Certainly appreciate you being such a great teammate. Thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.